How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Very nice, Mark. Very nice, especially... I, I like the way you elongated at the very end and, and just kept the breathing going. It was not, good. Not simply stage presence right there, right? There's a little bit of something going on there. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's all those voice lessons that you've been taking in law school <laughs> beforehand. It was fantastic. Yeah. It's great. And we missed you. It's been, this was actually a unique experience. Two shows in a row. Yeah. Tom did do a pretty good job, though. I but, know. I know. know. I know. But, they, they, but, they come, keep coming. They keep coming. I, I'm just curious. Can we can we just give a quick update on any of the sports scores of your family or how they do? Uh, uh, well, be, the baseball team is still going on. It is okay. Okay. Yeah, the tournament is still going on, so there'll be a game tomorrow. Um, I'm not okay. sure where the location is, but we're in the state semifinals. That's depending great. on yeah, so that's going to be fun. Timmy's Timmy's done, so uh, okay. Thursdays should be back to open and running the intro and all of the chitter chatter of the dr joe show great good we have an incredible guest who has been remarkably busy for quite some time tom could you please introduce our guest for tonight all right let's let me take some breaths he is the chief of the clinical and research programs in pediatric psychopharmacology and adult adhd at the massachusetts general hospital Director of the Allen and Lorraine Bressler Clinical and Research Program for Autism Spectrum Disorders at the Massachusetts General Hospital and Professor of Psychiatry at the Harvard Medical School. Oh, and he's the author and co-author of over 800 scientific articles, 650 scientific abstracts, and 70 <laughs> book chapters. And during the opening ceremony of the 8th World Congress on ADHD 2021, he was awarded the Medal of the World Federation of ADHD for a lifetime of outstanding contributions to the science and practice of ADHD. Ladies, gentlemen, pets, furniture, Dr. Joe, Dr. Joe, Seth yeah. Biederman. Yeah! Wow. Yes, absolutely. As much applause as we can have. Standing, standing ovation. Standing, standing ovation. Standing ovations. Absolutely. Dr. Biederman, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. I am My so pleasure, honored to have you. My pleasure to be here. It is great. And, and I just want to have full disclosure. Dr. Biederman was one of my absolute influential professors and mentors when I was doing my child psychiatry fellowship uh, way back when, 93 to 95 at MGH McLean. So he's absolutely laid the foundation for everything that I've done since. So thank you for that right off the top. My pleasure. my pleasure. You have done very well. It was a pleasure to supervise you, I think was uh, not always it is, as you know, uh, we have very good residents, but you are excellent. Oh, right. Oh, no, thank you. Isn't it, isn't, it nice, isn't it nice, Dr. Biederman, to see your tutelage come so far and be so successful? One of my biggest, my, one of my biggest pleasures is to see 
the unfolding careers of people that work and started is really a starting point in their careers residency um, yeah. and then they unfold and do great things so it's yeah. very one of those thank you very thank rewarding you. and i just want to give a shout out to andreas martin who was in my class he was also one of those people that uh, dr biedman trained and he's doing great even though he's at that other school other school yeah <laughs> uh, yale i mean we we you know sometimes you know we don't always talk about yale when we're talking <laughs> at harvard but we'll, it's okay we'll bring it up now so so dr biedman please tell us a little bit about yourself i want people to understand that the world of attention deficit was really not existing when right. when you started your career well, I would like to uh, to go to the preceding step. That okay. when I started child psychiatry, uh, when I trained in child psychiatry at Children's Hospital in Boston, I did not medicate a single child. Huh. Uh, after coming to the general, I decided to develop a totally new idea that this pediatric psychopharmacology. Uh, did not exist before. The idea that children may have problems that are not psychological, that not everything is a reaction to bad mothers. So it was quite revolutionary. So the establishment of pediatric psychopharmacology, kind of diagnosis, differential diagnosis, created a stage when I was uh, seeing children, the most common condition that affect children is ADHD. Uh, the most common reason for referral, parents started telling me that, doctor, you know, I had the same problem. Uh, I, I always thought that I was stupid, incompetent, all the kind of epithets that uh, they remember. This is a scarring condition, not having the opportunity to be treated in time or when you, in your formative years, uh, does not produce great memories. So, like curiosity, there, there are several things that happen simultaneously. One is ADHD was thought to be a kind of an idiotic, irrelevant condition that affects some boys. Okay, so I started looking at whether uh, is it true? Does it affect girls, for example? I, I did the largest study ever documenting that ADHD affects girls in a very similar manner as affects boys quite revolutionary idea at that point in time no girls were diagnosed okay <laughs> that was impos impossible so the 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 concerted effort to uh, establish the that ADHD is a persistent illness that continues into adult life totally unknown okay and that piqued the curiosity of saying well if these adults parents of ADHD children tell me that they have the same problem. And I also know that the children will continue to be affected into adult life. Must be a sizable number of adults out there with this disorder. So that's the starting point of publishing family style. One of the first things that I did, ADHD is a genetic illness. So I reason that if adult ADHD is a real disorder, the children of adult ADHD uh, people will have ADHD and in fact, we published uh, this paper in American Journal of Psychiatry many years ago, documenting that 50% of adults with ADHD that have children have an affected child. It's twice as large. In, if you start with a child, you have 
25% risk in pregnancy, but in sterile adults, they have a very high risk. It's just that in the adult form, the persistent form of the disorder is, is very genetic. Uh, so that, that's the way that started. And the next thing to do is, does it respond to the same treatment? Quite a revolutionary idea. Can you use the same medications adjusted for size? Of course, you cannot give a baby Tylenol to an adult, so have, they have to be adjusted. <laughs> so we started doing clinical trials. We published with Tom Spencer the first clinical trial of stimulants in adults with ADHD, and that led the way to pharmaceutical companies develop, developing drugs specifically for ADHD and getting FDA approval. But remember, a condition that affects 5 to 10% of children worldwide uh, that can benefit from therapeutics that are highly effective and can change people's lives. So it's a, an extraordinary contribution to the well being of millions across the world, not just a few people in my practice. Totally amazing history. Um, there there are, are so many questions to ask about this. So you're right, there, there was this, um, this idea beforehand that kids somehow were, were immune from needing medications? They, yeah, that they, any problem, emotional problem that the child had was mother's fault. Wow. And they, in fact, uh, during my training, the approach was quite, even then I did not know much. I was in tra trainee. Um, they were doing, when a, when a parent brought a child, they uh, demanded that the mother undergoes a psychoanalytic therapy for herself. Mm. So not parental counseling, that is what we do, kind of advising parents in better ways to manage a child that has problems, but as kind of a psychological, last, largely psychoanalytic approach to treating the mother, assuming that the mother is responsible for whatever befalls the child, really is so outrageous. One of the first thing that you may have heard me say at the beginning of supervision is never blame the mother. Okay? Right. Yep. Yep. Whatever you want to do, there is no, you know, being a parent, as many of you are, is probably the most responsible job of our life for which none of us got training. So mm -hmm. all, of, all of us, even professionals, wing it really so mm -hmm. but i i am not a priori assuming that the mother or the father had any ill intention they may not be uh <laughs> very good at it but uh, again we have licenses to be a hairdresser but not for parenting okay so this is, we are out there do whatever you want people read books they ask advice from others or pediatrician guiding but some are better at it and some are not so good. I think it's the, the child is blessed when the parents are competent and not so blessed when they are not. But the idea that they cause diseases, I, I never seen a child that develops diabetes that goes to the endocrinologist and the endocrinologist tells the mother that she fed the child too many chocolate cakes. It's right. outra outrageous. Right. Psychiatry not only blames the mother, but there's another thing that happened in psychiatry that's outrageous. Psychiatry is the only discipline that explained and explainable. Oh, I know why you are depressed. And how do you know? Okay. At best, those are hypotheses, not facts. Mm -hmm. oh, no, because uh, 
your dog died, okay? So you know right. how frequent dog, frequently dog dies? So hundred percent of the children that come to care, the dog died, parents are fighting, the grandmother is sick, okay? I can explain away everything. I don't even practice anything. I say, oh, I know uh, you are upset because of something, okay? Uh, none of those things are operant when somebody develops uh, seizures, okay? So, uh, the, there's no explanation. If, uh, neurologists will not attempt to explain why why do you get ill? Bad luck. No, what, what can you say? When when you get diagnosed with from little to horrible things, ask ask the why, okay? Um, no answer. In child psychiatry, we have answers for everything, particularly if you're psychoanalytically minded. Yes, I know. It, 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 there, there was a presumption and arrogance to it in many ways to say, I know why. And this, I mean, there's really, for me, there was only one way to figure that out. And that was to ask the patient. So what do you think's going on? The, the patient does not know why they have the problem. The patient will try to explain if you ask. Mm -hmm. Most of the time they have no idea. You know, depression is a biological illness, not a reaction. I'm not talking about having a romantic breakup and being upset. Kind right. of being upset and happiness is not depression. So if you develop a, a depressive episode, you cannot get out of bed. And you ask somebody, look, the weather is so beautiful, there are flowers. And you say, why, why are you depressed? Hey, yeah. no idea. No idea. Yeah. This, this kind of uh, asking the patients is the same as I said before. You can ask the patient the seizures. So tell me, wh what's going on? Why, why you are having these strange movements uh, mm -hmm. once in a while? Try, try to do that and see how successful you are yeah. going to be. Okay. So the the assumption that this is a reaction, yes, uh, is a really uh, an ideological passé view with ignoring biology. There is a brain. There are circuits that misfire. Uh, so they say, ah, you, you are depressed because when you ask people to explain things away, they will tell you something. And that does not, should not be interpreted as truth either. Mm. Mm. So was there a lot of, of um, resistance from the psychoanalytic community about this? What do you think? <laughs> Uh, it's it's you know I I'm a psychiatrist I get to ask these leading questions as well so tell me what happened. Well, nothing happened. We did not go. It's not like the Republicans and Democrats you say psychiatry. Uh, nobody insulted me or threw eggs at me, but they, <laughs> they they thought that I was crazy. Um, yeah. The idea of medicating a child is unthinkable, unthinkable. Uh, so the the idea that kind of I know why the child is having obsessive compulsive symptoms. It's a crippling, devastating illness. What, how, how can you possibly explain something that is so, or, or Tourette's syndrome? Can you imagine explaining why you are ticking and noises? What can you explain? Yeah, uh, I, I remember when, when you were first teaching me about this, you used the word uh, discouraged instead of depressed. And, and saying that a child, you know, one of their, one of their, goals in life. And one of my phrases, a good grade is better than Prozac. You know, a kid who's doing well in school, they feel pretty self-confident. And I remember you saying to me, here's a kid who can't focus, can't concentrate, isn't doing well in school, and they begin to get discouraged. 
and that can then lead them to feel depressed. Yeah, I think I think uh, first of all you need to keep in mind that the uh, there's a fertile. If you have genetic vulnerability to develop a condition, if that system is stressed, you develop the condition of interest. Okay, so it's like think about an osteoporotic. I know your viewers say. Uh, as uh, people, women age, and not only women, men too, but more in, more, it's more visible in women, the bones become fragile. Uh, it's called osteoporosis. I start with something that precedes that, that is called osteopenia. And that is what is targeted for treatment with some medicines that uh, uh, slow the process. But the point that I'm trying to say, if you your bones are fragile, a small fall will lead to a fracture. <coughs> what I mean? try to say is that if you have vulnerability, like say your immune system is compromised, anything that flows will get you. Mm -hmm. no, but not if your immune system is, is wrong. So if somebody has a vulnerability to develop depression, then goes to school, cannot concentrate, teachers scream at him, parents scream at him or her, uh, they may become first demoralized and then subsequently can become depressed. Uh, the demoralization that we see is very common in adults and children. Um, people that know that they're intelligent, people that know that they can do a job but cannot do it. Okay, it's, it's very, very often, you know, the most common treatment that I see in adults that were never diagnosed or treated, that is the overwhelming majority of people that I see in adults with ADHD, they are treated for complications. So they're treated with antidepressant, anti-anxiety medications. Mm -hmm. uh, they say the primary care treats the complication. The patient says, I'm, I'm totally desperate. I am, my wife wants to leave me or my husband does not want to be with me. My boss is about to fire me. So it's a desperate situation or I cannot finish college or whatever. So those are not producing a great feeling in, in ourselves. Uh, the same is true with anxiety. I think if you have a condition like ADHD, and you cannot do your work. You are terrified to go to work or to go to school. How am I going to face the music in the school? So those are those are things that very often people say says that they're apprehensive and anxious, and somebody will give them Prozac. Okay, um, but uh, those type of anxiety and depression that I call secondary anxiety and depression, they get much better when you treat ADHD. Although the the medicines for ADHD like the stimulants are not treatment for depression, but by providing relief to symptoms that impair the individual, child or adult, there is a better a sense of well-being by being more competent, more able to do things, not being fearful that the parents will scream or the teachers will be disappointed, whatever. Yeah. What do you think, Mark? Does this resonate at all? your world as i as my jaw is uh slowly lifted off the table i'm yeah. fascinated i'm sitting back as a as a listener uh enjoying every every morsel of this this conversation one of the things that was really interesting to me is when you were talking about when you first started doing this and people were presenting their children and blaming the mothers you know i think that still lingers on where at least the mothers feel some level of guilt that maybe they're not being a good mom. And, and Dr. Joe, if you remember Kim Barry being a normal, you know, she talked about that present day with her experiences. And uh, I guess, the, how do you, 
how do you get that message out more I, clearly? I, I really do not know. I think I, I, I think as Joe said, Dr. Joe said, uh, it's discouraging. It's really, this goes on today. It's not over. I think that the, you know who Danielle Steele is, no? The, the author? Yeah. She wrote the only non-fiction book that she wrote. It's a very tragic. I tell all my residents that it's a must reading. She wrote about her son. She has five, she had five children. Uh, one of them was sired by a different father, the one I'm talking about. The book is called The Life of Nick Trajana. Um, uh, this child uh, was difficult, problematic, uh, uh, kind of irritable, uh, kind of have temper tantrum since he was born, really, literally. And she went to doctors and they all accuse her. She narrates the story. This imagine San Francisco, not Guatemala. She has all the resources on her. She goes to the best of the best. And what they tell you, you write, you write too many books, okay? She says that without anger, she writes in the book, I write after I put all my children to bed. I have four other children that don't have any of these problems, okay? So it must be, again, as I discussed with you before, you have to have fertile grounds to develop something. Okay, it's not, things don't develop the novel. So, if you have the risk, there are those genes really. Uh, if something happens that disturbs the system, and the, the something happened does not need to be psychological. It could be viral, for example. Viruses, for example, the most common one is mononucleosis Epstein-Barr virus that is known to make uh, people depressed. Of course, not everybody is, gets depressed, but those that are vulnerability, for the menses, for example, if you are vulnerable to develop depression, your menses, uh, the women that uh, have uh, much worsening of their mood, not just being a living moody, but very moody, or postpartum depression, that is a life-threatening condition. So when the hormones go berserk after partum, after delivery, so people that have vulnerability to develop this will develop this. And it's a very, it's really life-threatening yeah. condition because people can become psychotic and become suicidal. It's a terrible thing. Certainly the mother may not be able to take care of the baby. That's a, the reality. What, what I'm trying to say is that we have to be very, very careful. And I think that explaining things is contributes and one of the easiest explanation is to tell that the mother, mothers, if the child has a cold, the mother will say, oh, I forgot to put the hat, okay? They don't need to tell for the dog. It's like when you say, I am stupid, and your interlocutor says, yes, you are stupid, me stupid. Mm. And so the, the idea, they go to the doctor for help, the doctor tells the mother. Yeah. All your, well, all, your, all your fault, okay? Yeah. It's very, very exciting. We, we, were, we were off air. We were just about to get into what I think most people would really wonder about because they understand that the medications for attention deficit are very often stimulants. How on earth did people come up with this? Because it just, it's just not intuitive that you give a stimulant to somebody who's already so hyperactive. Uh, uh, these discoveries, like all psychotropic, all medications, psychiatry, seren total serendipity. Hmm. The most recent serendipity is the discovery of Viagra. You know, Viagra, uh, I'm using this as an example to, to illustrate my point. 
Viagra was being developed as a cardiac medication to lower, to lower, lower blood pressure. Somebody observed that patients were not really, you know, when you do clinical trials, you give a few more pills than you need and you ask people to return, so you assess crudely compliance. So people are not returning the pills. And, and that, followed, that followed the discovery that has an effect that total serendipity. It's not that a chemist had a particular goal in mind, okay? So those days in the, we're talking about uh, the discovery of amphetamines was 1937 by Dr. Bradley in Rhode Island. The Bradley Hospital for Children in Rhode Island was named after him. So he was not looking for stimulants. He was running a ward for hyperactive children that were running around like crazy. And he was trying to do some research. Those days we did not have, he did not have access to MRI like we do today. So he was doing something that's called a, a pneumoencephalography that you inject air through a lumbar puncture and then you can visualize the brain. Okay, that's what's so for some reason he thought he was, after you do lumbar punctures, uh, people have headaches because you eliminate the cerebral spinal fluid. So he uh, came about the idea that he wanted to use amphetamines to mitigate headaches. And what he observed, like the Viagra story, all these children that he did that, instead of running around, sad and unable to participate in the classroom. He published that paper in 1937 in the American Journal of Psychiatry and that's the birth of amphetamines. In the 50s, also by serendipity, a Swiss chemist, chemist working out of what is now Novartis, Josiba Gagi then, um, came about, was looking for something else and came about Ritalin. Uh, he called the drug Ritalin because he uh, honored his wife that was named Rita. Mm. So, and that's the way that Ritalin was born, okay? And they generically are called stimulants. I do not know why, uh, but uh, they are not necessarily stimulating medicine, but they're kind of alerting, producing the stimulants have been used for many years and no longer are used for that as a weight suppression drugs, drug and has been used to maintain alertness in the military for, for, for many, many years. Uh, if you are a general and you are at war and you need to move a division overnight and the soldiers cannot go and, and sleep. So these medications were in every soldier's backpack. Huh. The pilots in World War II used this medication to have long flights to bomb Germany. Uh, I remember there was a very toxic article by somebody by the name of Nissen, as a cardiologist, uh, kind of giving venom on, on how dangerous the stimulants are. And one of the things that he says is that the, the uh, Air Force of Germany, the, the, the Wehrmacht, uh, used stimulants. And so he declared the medicines as Nazi uh, drugs. Okay, so. He forgot to say in the article that the military, the, uh, our pilots were using the same drugs for the same reasons, not only the German pilots. <laughs> but these are drugs that maintain alertness. So they're extensive, have been extensively used um, before. In the connection with ADHD, I think, comes from Dr. Bradley's observations that hyperactive children kind of calm down, I think, so to speak. 
they don't calm down. They're not hyperactive. That's also has a. So if you if you don't need ADHD medication, you take it. You be become agitated. Don't calm. Right. So, yeah. Right. That's the part that's just so remarkable. And um, I mean, for some people, you know, if they don't have attention deficit, they certainly get really agitated, really revved up, like they're. Yeah, it's like drinking coffee, but it has been it's excessively used still for doing all-nighters in college is the most common reason for this off-label kind of extracurricular use of, of medications of this type is to, to study, uh, not to party. I think for most people with ADHD, the medication is not associated with any high. So that's mythology too. Uh, right. In fact, the majority of patients feel funny, like happens with narcotics too, with opioids. Not everybody gets high on the opioids. Some people feel very funny and uncomfortable because the reason for that is there are several opioid receptors. The one that produces euphoria is one of them, but there's another one that's called kappa receptor that produces the opposite of a kind of a funny feeling. And, and patients will tell you if you treat children or adults and say, I don't feel myself. I lost my sense of humor. My, my friends don't like to hang around me. I'm too serious and I can only uh, do work. This, this type of complaints. It's not kind of, oh, gee, give me more of that. I, I am super excited. That's really, it's not. The main problem with ADHD treatment is that people don't take the medicine. So we have a condition that is supposed to ruin your life. We have extraordinary, helpful, effective medicines. People don't take it. And, and do parents worry that, you know, their kids will get addicted or, you know, yeah, that they'll they start worry, using drugs? They worry the data that I published and by me and I, others showed exactly the opposite. Those that have the good fortune of being diagnosed and treated have a dramatic reduction in risk for addiction, not the other way around. Yeah. The, risk, the risk is very high if you don't treat. Yeah. And this, this is part of what I also say to audiences with something we, we do called drug story theater where um we had in in the show one of the girls who did not have attention deficit and this is a true story had been stealing her friend's adderall and getting high from it and of course when kids in the audience hear that and their parents hear that they think oh my gosh this is you know a very dangerous drug and we explain for those people who do not have attention deficit it absolutely can be. But for those who do, uh, because they start doing better in school, they're less likely well, to want to use drugs remember, later on. Remember, these medications, I prefer not to use the word drug because that had negative connotation. Excellent. Thank you. Medication. Thank you. And those people that uh, there is a, there are scheduled medication, that means there is a recognition that this type of medication can be inappropriately used. Mm -hmm. I like to editorialize that statement by reminding people that those people that are uh, taking these medications to get high, they are different people than the ones that have legitimate. It's like if you have malignancy and terrible pains, thanks God we have opioids. Okay, thanks God. Tylenol will not do anything to those people. So to, to say that we are not going to use it because some people inject IV heroin uh, yes, some people do that, like there is inappropriate behaviors in all fields. But the reality is that the people that, there's another thing that's very important to remember, the oral administration is not really associated with euphoria. 
when those people that misuse it snort it. So many of the long-acting medications are very difficult to snort. So they're much safer. There are some medications like Vivans, for example, that is a prodrug that is inactive outside the body, so you cannot inject, you cannot snort. Some of the new generation of long-acting compounds use some kind of almost like a gel, very complicated delivery system. It's impossible to smoke, snort, or do anything uh, that it produces it. For the risk for euphoria is when you snort it, because snorting is the same as IV. It goes straight to the brain, and the, the faster it goes to the brain, the more the euphoric say, feeling. But uh, the, the risk for addictions in appropriately treated people is very, very, very small. You mentioned that folks, it's more dangerous if they're not treated. And my, my question to you was, is that because they tend to self-medicate? And your answer was? No, absolutely not. I think that I recently published did the following exercise. Uh, today, we have access to what's called big data millions of people, kind of registries, insurance company, electronic medical records. I can mine the entire partner's healthcare electronic medical record. For example, I'm examining now the important question of whether ADHD treatment uh, affects growth in height. And most of the data are from clinical trials that are ratified samples. So I, I can examine that question in an ecologically informative way. So, I published a, a paper that reviewed, it's called literature review of all big data set with millions of people in it. And I, I asked a question, I looked at functional outcomes, suicide risk, traumatic brain injury, accidents, automobile accidents, visit to the emergency room, depression, bipolar illness, addiction, not just addictions, okay? And ADHD increases all these risks. Treatment mitigates all of of these risks, okay? So those people, because you can link those data sets to treatment data sets. So you can answer the question, those people that are treated and are compliant with their treatment, do they have the same outcome? The answer is no. Imagine if you, ADHD is a risk for suicide, okay? No, there is no argument in, in any of us that suicide is a bad outcome, no? Treatment, yeah treatment of ADHD markedly decreases that risk. To, to give an example, so people are a little bit over focused on the addiction issue. Uh, that's one of many horrendous outcomes that in themselves are devastating. For example, traumatic brain injury is a terrible problem, okay? In particular sports injuries. So people with ADHD are at much higher risk to uh, have a traumatic brain injury and complicate with a traumatic brain injury. That means they recover very, very slowly. So after a traumatic brain injury, they may have a lot of problems regaining function. Their peers that may have the same injury may recover much better. But so the over-focusing on addiction as the only bad outcome, I would say that getting killed in a car accident is a much worse outcome than, than drinking beer, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, and ADHD will do all of the above, okay? It's a very, very significant risk for automobile crashes, very significant risk. Not only they have more automobile crashes, people with ADHD and medicated, but the car crash is more severe. How do we know it's more severe? 
by the cost of the repair, okay? So they uh, maim themselves, they maim others. I, I have personally have patients that run over pedestrians and kill them. Imagine a 20-year-old in college running over a classmate and killing the classmate. How you live with that the rest of your life, no? So those are the things you change the, the radio station for, for a moment and that's it, doesn't need much. So I think that if over-focusing on addictions as the only problem of ADHD is a real disservice to the enormity of the problem, enormity of the problem. If you take any psychiatric condition, garden variety, adult psychiatric depression, anxiety, PTSD, whatever you want, 20 to 30% of any of those patients also have ADHD. And ADHD will bring to the table all the complications of ADHD and the treatment of depression or anxiety does not treat ADHD. So you still remain highly impaired if, even if you successfully treat depression. So is it, is it, if you suffer from diabetes or cardiovascular disease and you don't take your medicine, you don't become non-compliant, eh? you die young. And somebody, a very famous psychologist working in ADHD by the name of Russell Barkley, recently published a paper that ADHD will shorten your life by about a decade. He claims that uh, that is due to this problem of not being proactive. <laughs> I like the your advertiser being proactive is important. I think yes, absolutely. Right. So being if, proactive. If you don't go and check your blood pressure, how do you know your blood pressure is elevated? <laughs> if you don't check your lipids, how do you know that your lipids are elevated? And then you go around eating uh, whatever you want and you have a terrible risk for cardiovascular disease. So I think this, this issue of going to the doctor, checking and things of that type uh, may allow the person to survive. If you have ADHD, none of these things, they, they are reactive. So they go to the doctor when something is bad. And at that time, usually it's too late. Uh, if you have a tumor already spread, if you have a, a chronic disease already has sequela, like if you treat blood pressure problems for years, you end up with congestive heart failure. You, you may have a cardiac creep. So those are the issues that uh, we face in the field. And also off air, we were talking about one of the, the big risk factors for not treating, if for, for people who are untreated attention deficit, is it affects their self-esteem. The treatment? Yeah, no, not being treated. Oh, if they're not treated, uh, yeah, their self-esteem is ineffective. I, I would say that uh, the problem uh, very often is in pediatrics that the, the, the ADHD is a frontal lobe disorder. So in order for you to visualize and uh, be aware that you have a problem, you have to have a good frontal lobe. Mm -hmm. So very often uh, children will tell you, I, I, don't have, I don't know what my parents, why my parents brought me to you. I don't have any problems. And I know that they have problems because the children that were expelled from school that day. And they say, how, how is school? Oh, fantastic, okay? So the absence of awareness that this is a problem also creates obstacles. So those children that are not aware, the moment that they can, will stop treatment, okay? With dire consequences. Imagine you go to college, you stop the treatment. The chances in a difficult environment, like college life, to succeed, you don't go to college to party. So the idea that you party, uh, play computer games day and night because nobody supervises you, 
um, it's not conducive to academic success. It's a terrible problem. Uh, so this part, this absence, of course, that's not the case in adults, because by definition, the adults that seek treatment are aware that they have a problem. Okay? So it's a very different environment to treat it, and they are very grateful to be treated and very appreciative. But no, it's not only the case in pediatrics. What percentage of, of people who are diagnosed with attention deficit as children will continue to have attention deficit as adults? About 60%. Oh, about 60%. That's whether it's treated or not. Whether it's treated or not, yes. That's fascinating. Much of I, what I try to impress upon you, the difficulties that people with ADHD are beyond ADHD. For example, mm -hmm. if you have executive function deficit, difficulties planning, organizing, they don't respond very well to medicines for ADHD. So these people continue to have troubles at work and those people that have learning disabilities like dyslexia, for example, you continue to have dyslexia. Those people that complicated with addictions, depression, things like that, they're not starting adult, adult life on the right, on the right leg, if, if you're right-handed. So we're, we're getting to the, towards the end of the show. Let me ask you, we ask all of our folks who have been our guests two questions. Based on what I call the I am approach, that so we're always doing the best we can, influenced by four domains, the home domain, the social domain, the biological domain of your brain and body, and what I call the I see, how I see myself, how I think other people see me. These four domains interconnect. So a small change can have a big effect. Just like when we add a medication, we're making a small change in the biological domain that can have a huge effect through all the other domains. What small change can you recommend to our listeners who may or may not have ADD? I will, I will answer the question with an, an imagery and not, not directly answering your question. I think what, what decisions that people make in life uh, are a very personal and important. And who am I to tell people what changes you need to do to change your life? But it's true that small changes can have. I use the following imagery with my residents that if you have an obstacle in front of your vision, like let's say fence, and I give you a small step ladder that elevates you from the floor just a little bit, but you suddenly can see the horizon, okay? So sometimes in our management of diseases, uh, chronic diseases, let's say, uh, I remember I, I was uh, privileged in participating in the first clinical trial for pediatric obsessive compulsive disorder. The second thing, you control no one, you influence everyone. The four domains interconnect. We are influencing people. Dr. Joseph Biedemann, what kind of influence do you want to be? Well, I think that I had the privilege of... Uh, changing my field, as you said in your kind introduction about me, uh, the publishing scientific papers. I don't, I'm not evangelical about the, any of these things. So I put the papers, data in front of my colleagues and they have to judge that can make those changes. And those changes are the ones that I talked about, pediatric media, adult ADHD. Thank you so much, Dr. Biedemann. This has been an incredible show, folks. 